Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane and it's Friday, March the 20th. Welcome to the highlights of the issue dated March the 21st to the 27th. And I'm delighted to be joined this week by my colleague and longtime podcast guru, Dr. Rona MacDonald. Welcome, Rona. Hello there. Hi there, Rona. Let's start. A lot to talk about this week. We're going to give an overview of the issue. Let's start with the clinical content, some important clinical content, isn't there? Let's start with the first research article concerning blood pressure lowering for dialysis. Am I right in saying, Rona, that if you like, the drivers for this particular research is that previous research has been fairly ambiguous as to whether blood pressure lowering is a good thing to do for dialysis patients? That's absolutely right. This study, in fact, two of our studies this week are very positive and encouraging. So the question, as you rightly said, has been whether patients who are on dialysis, whether it's actually beneficial to them to take treatment for high blood pressure, hypertension. So the authors in this study did a meta-analysis of eight trials altogether, which accounts for 1,679 patients, so a large group of dialysis patients there, and they found unequivocally that um, treatment with all agents that lower blood pressure, so all treatments for hypertension, should be routinely considered uh, for patients on dialysis because it reduced the very high cardiovascular morbidity and mortality rate in this population because patients on dialysis have a higher risk of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. So this is actually very encouraging news and I think answers a question, you know, a really important clinical question that doctors have been asking for a while now. We've got another clinical-oriented research article, Rona, and this is looking at a possible new treatment option for vertical compression fracture of the spine. Can you explain what this is? Well, it's something called balloon kyphoplasty, which many people may not have heard of. And I'll just read out what it says about it in the article, and then I'll try and explain maybe a bit more what that means. So here's what the authors describe balloon kyphoplasty. They say it's a minimally invasive procedure that's intended to reduce pain, disability and vertebral deformity by use of catheters with inflatable bone tamps placed inside the affected vertebral body. Balloon inflation compacts the cancellous bone and pushes the end plates apart, which might restore height and correct angular deformity. Once the balloons have been removed, the resulting void is filled with viscous bone cement to stabilise the vertebral body. So basically what that means is they're creating space. I mean, what happens within a vertebral compression fracture is the vertebra collapses in on itself. So what this minimally invasive procedure is doing is it increases the space again, so it increases the height and the the fill, I say, the space in between with this viscous bone cement. It's a very novel procedure and has huge advantages over other treatments, including non-surgical treatments for vertebral compression fractures. The authors did this procedure in 138 participants in, uh, or patients with vertebral compression fractures and 128 controls and they showed that balloon kyphoplasty was effective and safe for patients with acute vertebral fractures and so this might be a useful treatment option, another treatment option for patients with this really serious and painful and disabling condition in the future. So it sounds a bit high tech but it's basically putting a balloon in to uncompress the vertebra as it were and it sounds very promising. Thank you very much, Rona. So, as Rona says, two very positive clinical studies there, which we hope will very much change clinical practice soon, I hope. Soon, yeah, absolutely. Sooner the better. Absolutely. The third research article, Rona, this is more global health related. This is to do with measles vaccination programs in Zambia. And I know you're quite familiar with this paper. Can you just uh, walk us through the story here? Sure. Well, first, we loved this paper all 
the way through. It has a very important message, but it's also very novel. It uses two novel techniques, including satellite imaging and also using oral fluid samples for children. Basically, as you know, measles is a massive problem in developing countries. And as well as giving the first immunisations, it's important to keep on giving immunisations. And WHO is promoting what's called supplemental immunisation activity, which is really giving uh, another vaccine or you know, an update every three years. So this happened in Zambia and the authors uh, used this very, very novel technique of randomly selecting which households they were going to go to by using a satellite image, which seemed to work very well. And then they gave a questionnaire to the children's parents to basically ask them the vaccination history. And then they got oral fluid samples from the children. Now, this is very novel and new because oral fluid samples aren't normally used. And again, this showed that it was actually, obviously, it's much easier to do in the field, but it also was very effective as well. But the downside of this, because, you know, it's all the... um, global effort behind measles vaccination is actually despite this three years after this supplemental immunization activity the population immunity to measles was still um, not sufficient enough to interrupt measles virus transmission in vaccination programs you rely quite a lot on what's called herd uh, immunity so that it's protection of the population not just individuals so there's enough commu- there's enough protection within the community above a certain threshold yeah but but this shows actually that there's no it wasn't there in this case in this case yeah yeah uh, which you know with all the efforts towards you know immunization of measles i think is a very important message because quite often it's almost like a, a checklist have they been immunized yes have you given this up the supplemental immunisation activity, yes, without actually evaluating whether it was effective or not. And so this is really quite an important message to show that um, it might not be as effective as what we think. So we might need to look into new strategies for trying to get the the kind of herd immunity of uh, measles antibodies up. Indeed, and presumably because this field study was done in in Zambia, HIV was playing a role here in the background. That's right, absolutely. And it showed that children who'd antibodies to HIV uh, were as likely to have no history of measles vaccination than those without antibodies. So really, those um, with HIV are really missing out on never having received measles vaccine. Yeah, that's a sobering message and a very important one. Let's conclude with a discussion of the long editorial in this week's issue. And this concerns the upcoming G20 meeting that's being hosted in London by the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. We're particularly delivering or requesting um, some health analysis, aren't we, within the G20 discussions. Take it away, Ronan. Tell us more. Well, first of all, the G20 summit is actually really important to global health. I know that might not seem obvious, but the financial crisis and its consequences is having such a negative impact on health, especially in poorer countries. And this was clearly documented in the WHO report in January after a high-level consultation. What concerns us, really, is that the G20... Well, first, it's made up of the most industrialised countries. So, okay, some emerging markets are there, like, you know, China and India. But, you know, poorer countries don't have a look in. So our worry is that, yet again, it's going to be the powerful elite that make decisions that affect the rest of the world, including poorer countries who, as you know, miss out all the time because, you know, they're not included. And so um, decisions are imposed on them that's actually usually detrimental for the poorer countries' economies. So sorry, a bit of name dropping here, but I was actually at a reception at number 10 last week. Ooh. <laughs> I know, sorry. But the reason this is relevant 
is because Gordon Brown gave a very impassioned speech about, you know, alleviating global poverty and improving global health and how this is even more important in this economic downturn. And he said that talk many times, but I think when you're at a more private reception, you can tell really that well, I thought he was absolutely genuine. You know, he's got a long history of being committed to this issue. He was very much behind the Make Poverty History campaign and all the um, recommendations on that. And so, in a way, he's in a very difficult position with the G20 because, you know, obviously there's the development agenda, you know, trying to do something for the poorer countries. And yet the squabbling last weekend as countries, G20 countries, were de- de- trying to decide the agenda showed that really it looks like there might not be any agreement because everyone wants to discuss different things and usually um, or so far it's things that will affect the G20 countries themselves not other countries and so really our editorial is a plea to Gordon Brown to act in his convictions because we really believe he is genuine uh, you know to towards allevi- alleviating global poverty because he's been saying this over and over for years um, so we make some suggestions of because he's in the very powerful position here of you know, being the host, so in effect being the leader of the G20 uh, at the summit in London. And so we give some suggestions of some of the direction he might be able to take the discussions in, which could really improve the health of people in poorer countries by helping to alleviate global poverty. So, I mean, some of these things are difficult. Some of these things are a bit out of the box, as you can see in the editorial. But other things are a kind of build on the last G20, which was in Washington in November. And there was a G20 communique after that. So it's things that there was already some consensus on. Um, so in a way, it's just trying to take these things further forward, like reformation of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization. So instead of it just being another talk shop, because let's face it, we've had enough of these, we actually come up with some you know, consensus on a way forward and some pragmatic action. Democratic economic governance, and the democratic in there is really important, is such an important issue because otherwise responding to the the financial downturn, we're just going to be repeating more of the same of what we've done in history has shown that that doesn't work and it's very elitist and it doesn't help poorer countries. So in a way, we do have a chance to start again. Some of the editorial is, uh, you know, has that in mind, is making some suggestions that are way out there but are, are just and fair, like why don't we just wipe the debt slate clean? I mean, come on, more money's leaving Africa than it still receives in aid, an economic financial downturn. How can rich countries still expect sub-Saharan African countries to pay that debt back? Can we not just start again? But we really hope that Gordon Brown will read it, and you never know, he may just pay attention. Well, let's hope he does, and we'll be watching and listening out at that G20 meeting coming up next month in London. And who knows, maybe he'll read this editorial. Mind you, you're going to send it to him, aren't you? Already have. (laughs) Good, just checking. Many thanks, Rona. So some highlights there from the issue of The Lancet dated March the 21st to the 27th. Thanks for listening. See you next week.